joining me on another episode of Next in Q. My name is Rob Dwyer, and this is the podcast about customer experience and contact center professionals. And today, we are definitely joined by a customer experience professional. This episode is going to be a little bit different. Thank you for joining me, Shana Hayes. How are you? I'm doing well today, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. So you are an adjunct math professor at snhu.edu, Southern New Hampshire University, which is a little bit different than most of my guests. (laughs) That that is very true, yes. From what I um, have gathered through my research, um, and I've listened to a couple of previous episodes, so yes, definitely a different flavor today. Yeah, so I'm very excited about that. And so we're going to talk about some of the things that you are doing in the CX or Uh, Maybe you even call it the LX space, learner experience. Uh, But first, I want to, as I typically do, kind of start and back up and find out where you are originally from. Are are you from New Hampshire originally? Is that home? Oh, it is home now. I am not originally from New Hampshire. I am a transplant. Um, That being said, New Hampshire is one of those interesting states where a lot of folks who have been born in New Hampshire, do not ever leave. So it's an interesting place to be if you did not um, grow up here. So um, I actually grew up in upstate New York, so about an hour north right. of um, the capital, which is Albany. So and I went you... to college in New Hampshire and have never left, to be honest. So I, <laughs> I went to undergrad out here, and then I um, taught high school math for a handful of years um, before I moved into higher ed. Yeah, so you are definitely a Northeastern. Uh, that's that's yes. home. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, New England with um, New York gets lumped in there because uh, I grew up in the Adirondack Mountains. So okay. essentially the same um, environment as New Hampshire, very foresty and a lot of trees and all that stuff. Um, yeah. It's not uh, New York City-esque as uh, a lot of the folks um, when I went to college were very confused about why I did not talk like I was from New York. Um, right. of geography. <laughs> yeah. Uh- I think those people that are not familiar with uh, the Upper East Coast, uh, most of us, when we think of New York, we think of New York City, and that's all we think of. And there is no other New York outside of that. But it turns out there's actually a lot of New York outside of that. Um, it is It is not just the people that are not from New York. If you ask anyone that lives in or in towards New York City, anything that is not the island or the city of New York in a borough, <laughs> Um, is considered upstate. And so I have had some wild conversations about like, oh, you live in upstate, you lived in upstate, like whereabouts? Um, and you could get anything from just outside of New York City to Buffalo to the Canadian border. And I'm like, these things are like nine hours apart. Like, how did we, how did we get this classification system? So it's always a very interesting conversation to say the least. Yeah, for sure. So aside from math, I believe you must have a sports passion because 
I was surprised to see that you got a master's in sports management. And I think this is probably centered on a sport in particular. Is that the case? That is true. So uh, growing up, I played ice hockey my whole life. Um, and so when I was teaching high school math, um, the state of New Hampshire does not require what I was teaching anyways. I'm not sure of the standards today, um, just to be frank. But when I was teaching, you did not re- was not required to have a master's degree. Um, but the way that the pay scale is, as in most states, um, it's kind of the um, charted matrix system. So um, kind of the vertical is the years of experience you have in the classroom and the horizontal line is your education degrees um, and credits and kind of all of that stuff. And so um, if you do have a master's degree, you get a, um, in most districts, a substantial pay raise. Um, but at that point, it didn't matter um, what the degree was in. It was you had to have a master's of sorts. And so I didn't want it in education because that's what my undergrad was. And a lot of the coursework um, that I had explored in various programs was very similar to the courses that I had taken in undergrad. And my undergrad program, I loved greatly and I hold it near and dear to my heart. Um, But I'm also a human that wants to make sure that I'm getting value out of the courses that I'm taking and um, really don't like repetitive things. So I thought I want to do something different and something that's going to be fun. Um, And so I chose sport administration um, and got that at SNHU, ironically, before I started working there full time. Um, so I did pay for it at the time, um, which is always like this kicker that I have now, but, um, but yeah, so, um, I did a lot of work through that program. Um, I studied a lot about the Olympics because that was always really fascinating to me. So I learned, um, a lot about the Olympics and kind of how that process works for bidding on, um, holding them and what that does to economies and stuff. So that was really fascinating. So now that I um, kind of have that background, it's really interesting to think about um, when they come around every few years. Yeah, this year's Winter Olympics, to me, I almost feel like they didn't happen because I've just not paid any attention to them. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's the time difference. I don't know if it's just the um, weird thing with not um having spectators there for the olympics or um if i just don't care at at this point i don't know (laughs) but i feel like this is the first olympics where i'm like i i I couldn't tell you what really happened honestly yeah i will say um because my fiance and i both work from home um and we have two dogs and so they bark at a lot of things so if you hear them apologies in advance to everyone but um we always have the TV going. Um, and so when the Olympics were on, we just had that on in the background rather than some other, you know, ESPN or the news or whatever we chose to put on that day. Um, and so we got a lot of random sports that I probably would have never put on without <laughs> needing to have some noise on in the background. Um, so we watched a lot of curling and we learned that the mono bob is a new sport for women in the Olympics this year, which I was like, I've never heard of this. Um, it's a one woman bobsled. I was like, oh, okay. Is this, is this a new thing? And then I was like, oh, they just said it's brand new to the sport for the Olympics this year. This is fascinating. Um, but I did have a lot of late nights and early mornings with um, the time difference for some of the um, US and Canadian hockey games. So um, that was interesting um, and caused for some uh, much needed coffee and caffeine the next day. Yeah, <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, curling has always been the one that just gets me. And I lived in Minnesota for a couple of years, and uh, <laughs> obviously it's popular up there, but I just don't really understand why that's so exciting. Um, but 
you know what? I grew up in Kansas and I don't get hockey either, but <laughs> people that grew up north, like hockey is a religion. It's it's very different. I'm a baseball, basketball, football kind of guy, but and I, I like hockey live. I really do, especially if you can get close to the glass. It's really exciting, really visceral. Um, but I just I just can't do it on TV. It's just not my thing. Hmm, yeah, see, I would say the same thing about baseball. Like, I would go to a baseball game, um, but watching baseball live for me, or like watching it on TV, um, it's got to be a really exciting game for me to keep my attention. I understand. Um, That's pretty common, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so hockey was kind of the the motivator for the, the master's degree outside of the... Um, desire to get a pay bump um, while I was teaching high school math because um, I'm sure it's no surprise um, to most people that um, teachers don't make um, millions uh, in most places and so um, that pay raise was really significant um, at the time of my life. Um, yeah, I bet. Yeah. So, so you're at SNHU now and I think for uh, the Americans in the audience you'll probably recognize that school even though it's not a school known for uh, athletic program or, or right it's it's certainly not something you're you're gonna recognize because they've got a great football team or basketball team um for for the viewers outside of the united states i'm sure you don't recognize it but snhu is a it's a private university but it's also a non-profit university and they do a lot of advertising nationwide. And part of the reason is because they've been in the online learning space for a really long time. So have you been involved in any of that online learning space since you've been there? Because they also have a campus and it's brick and mortar like a traditional college. So how, how have your classes fit into that? Uh, pre-COVID and then we'll talk about kind of what happened. Sure. Um, yeah, so I've had an interesting trajectory at SNHU. So I'll back up um, real quick and hop back into hockey for a minute here, Rob. Um, so I actually stopped teaching high school math because I sustained a traumatic brain injury while playing ice hockey. Um, and so through that um, process, I needed to find a new job that did not require me to do math at the time because that was one of the things that took the longest to come back um, was my basic math skills. And so I was in my early 20s and um, having this crisis of, I just spent, you know, a quarter of a million dollars to do this thing that I, you know, like most teachers think they're gonna do forever. Um, and now I, I can't do it for at least the time being. And so um, I needed to find a new role. Um, and so I applied to a bunch of things that were very random, like being the warehouse retail manager at the Nike outlet um, and was told I was overqualified. And it was this really awful time in my life, to be honest. But um, the best thing to come out of that was I actually um, received an offer to work as an academic advisor at SNHU in their online space. Um, and so academic advisors um, in our online division, um, which now known as Global Campus, formerly known as COCE, which is the acronym for the College of Online and Continuing Education. So if there's some folks that have um, known SNHU for a bit, they may have kind of heard the, the former. Um, so I actually was um, on the phones with students 
I had a caseload of students that I managed um, all of their kind of academic um, progress, retention of those students, um, working towards graduation requirements, any issues, problems, et cetera. I was kind of their um, number one point of contact, similar to um, what I would relate to a, a CSM or a customer success manager in our um, kind of corporate world. Um, and then through, through that, I did that for about a year and a half or so. Um, and then I said, I want to do more things. And I think I can think a little bit bigger than this. And so then I actually took a role working in our brick and mortar um, traditional campus, which is much smaller and serves um, since the pandemic, our numbers have gone down slightly, which is true for most, you know, traditional um, kind of residential institutions. But um, we average about 3000 students on campus. Okay. Um, and so I've been on campus now since the fall of 2017 in a variety of roles. Um, I organized learner support. Um, for our engineering STEM programs. And then I rolled into a new initiative to support um, kind of the transformation and how do we um, offer programs that are less financially burdensome for students. So how do we decrease the cost, um, not only for us to provide them, but also for students to, to attend. So they're graduating with less debt. Um, so to reducing that debt to income ratio. And then um, to your point, the, the pandemic showed up um, and that um, initiative went from a team of four um, to a team of the entire university is now embarking on um, kind of this larger initiative to um, kind of move the work forward in a much more profound way and kind of set the stage for um, other institutions, hopefully to follow suit kind of in the future. Um, and so through that, um, I received a new role um, at the um, institution as the director of customer experience and retention. So really focusing on leveraging those best practices in our customer support and customer experience um, kind of areas and in, in corporate friends um, and how do we bring those in and merging those with some of our student experience practices and stuff and so it's definitely a, a new idea a new flavor um, which yeah. sometimes education has a hard time with as we know um, but it's also really exciting so that's the, the quick answer to your question. No that's great so there's a lot to unpack there uh, but I think that what drew me to to want to bring you onto the show was actually this new role that you have, and um, it seems like that I have not seen universities really um, up until maybe recently be embracing this idea of customer experience, learner experience, and and focusing on things in a way that kind of what we've seen in the corporate world and and yeah. you have just jumped headlong into that and so <laughs> I find that fascinating and I do think too that there are so many choices now because online learning has become it's become more and more popular but I think what we've all seen is sometimes you may be forced into that yeah and if I don't have to physically move to be on a campus, my choices grow exponentially. So how do I differentiate myself? Right, I have, I have more access to more options, right? So it's now, no, my choices are no longer these three schools that are within 20 minutes of where I live because I don't want to have to pay for housing um, right. or to live in the dorms, for example. Um, so yeah, so the, the pandemic definitely exacerbated some of those pieces. And I think, um, you know, SNHU has been online now for decades. And so um, that program has certainly um, 
been through a lot of renditions, um, but they are a well-oiled um, facet of, of, our, of our industry, right? And so um, our ability to kind of pivot was certainly different than a lot of our counterparts. Um, and so we actually, with our, in, our incoming class, we were one of the few institutions that did not bring students back on campus um, until the fall of 2021. So we were remote for a year and a half, um, likely because we were financially stable enough to not need um, the increased tuition and increase in the room and board rates that um, other institutions likely needed to survive, right? So I realized that that decision also comes from while it is a, a safety safety measure for us um, and for our students and for our you know all of the folks that work there, such as myself, um, also coming from a place of privilege for um, a lot of institutions didn't have that ability because they needed the funding um, and those kind of dollars coming in from their students in order to, to make ends meet. And so um, what that looked like for us was certainly different than a lot of institutions, right? So we pivoted like everyone else did in March of 2020 and moved everything remote. Our full-time faculty you know, ran remote courses for the end of, of that semester and then kind of the fall 2020 semester through spring 2020, our incoming first year class actually um, kind of took a hybrid is probably the wrong word, but that's the word I'm going to use in this moment. Um, so we actually bridged for one of the first times our online and campus modalities. And so um, our incoming first year class actually took courses out of our fully kind of already robust and stood up um, online course catalog. Um, and we orchestrated kind of edits to those to make sure that they were um, appropriate for the majors that they were pursuing and kind of um, making sure that they weren't going to um, get off track or behind in all of those things. And, and through that process, we did um, a ton of work in terms of merging some of the support systems in place because previously um, they have been separate entities. So um, like the advisor you'd get on campus would be different than the one online and the um, how you would access student support that you'd get on campus would be different than how you access it online. The um, kind of the back end of the website would be different if you were a campus student or an online student. And so um, there was a lot of back end IT work we needed to do to kind of figure yeah. out how we were going to make it all work with um, the, the way that students were coded in our systems. And so I was able to serve um, as the kind of the lead project manager um, through um, that process. And so that was fascinating. And I learned a lot about so many systems that I didn't even know existed, to be totally honest with you. Um, but I met a lot of really great people who all jumped in to say, like, how do we how do we make this work um, at a time in which there wasn't another option, right? The, the option yeah. was this or, or we don't bring in the, an incoming class because we, we can't not do this the right way. Um, and so I'm really grateful to work for a place that is always going to put the students first and kind of through that process. Um, that has then kind of turned around um, and landed this, this new role and kind of what that looks like uh, moving forward and how do we rethink some of our learner experience um, initiatives and what does it mean to truly put the learner at the center of those decisions um, and what do they truly care about, right? Because in education, to your point earlier, we don't ask a lot, right? We, we focus on the, the business specific KPIs our key performance indicators are they are students graduating, which is important. We need to report that sure. to um, various entities for accreditation and you know financial aid and all of that stuff. Um, as well as like, are they retaining? Are they persisting? Are they succeeding in their courses? Um, but are they enjoying that experience? Is it? Are they satisfied with it? 
have they noticed, is it difficult to access our website? You know, with measuring those very, um, you know, as my colleagues would likely say, corporate-esque um, kind of measures, such as your, your net promoter or your customer effort score, um, which sound like business jargon to a lot of folks in education. <laughs> um, but when you really break it down and think through what that means for our students, um, like, no, they, they shouldn't have to get a form signed by seven people who you can't tell them what time of day they're going to be in their office and when they can go get the form signed. Um, like, why is that the process? And why is that necessary? Is there, there's got to be a better way to do that. It's just the way that it's always been. And we've never collectively prioritized the, the need to make it better, right? And so um, the position has really been about what do we do now? Where do we kind of assess and collect any, um, you know, voice of customer or the, the term we just kind of settled on is voice of student or voice of learner feedback to date? Um, and then how do we look at that data and what do we do with it? And if those questions are not um, effective or the answers to those questions are not effective in terms of we don't do anything with it or we don't actively use it to then go back and make adjustments to improve the experience, well, how can we ask these questions in a better way or um, working with some of our teams who truly their, their whole role is building out those student surveys or those kind of mechanisms to collect the feedback. Um, what are you trying to ask and what do you want to know um, so that we can work with folks who can actually design the questions in a way that are gonna get you the information that you need versus um, having you know, someone in this office design a survey with the best of intentions, right? But like, I'm not a survey designer. That is, that is not my um, you know, level of expertise. Um, and so if I design a survey, it's not nearly going to be as good um, or as unbiased as someone who's, whose sole responsibility um, and his sole role and his expertise is in kind of survey design and making sure it's unbiased and asking questions in the right way and that type of thing. Yeah, it seems number one that uh, a university may have some advantages in the uh, variety of the type of experts that it has within <laughs> at its disposal in, in those types of things. Um, but I wonder too, when you look at things from a customer experience standpoint, are you looking at things differently between the on-campus learner and the, the, the virtual learner? And, and what kind of different things are you looking at when it comes to that? Obviously, uh, for a time, there have been a lot of people that are just doing things virtually, but what's different and, and kind of walk us through kind of your thought process. Is that a whole separate exercise? Uh, do you combine the two? What, what happens there? Yeah, so essentially I will share that the, um, our online our global campus folks are a little bit ahead of where campus is um, with some of the, the CX work that they've been doing. So they kind of embarked on this process um, before us. So they're definitely ahead of us. Um, but to answer your question, Rob, it is definitely um, an aligned exercise, but two very different subsets of populations, um, mainly because the factors that influence um, that student feedback are very different. The students that are attending our online population or our online programs, um, they are taking those from eventually their workplace or they're taking them from the library or their home dinner table or what that might be, right? And so they are solely um, with SNHU for their academics. And so they're 
their overall experience is solely academic. And then obviously we have some learner support systems. We have advising financial aid, you know, the basics packaging. And then we have some student clubs and orgs that students can join online. Um, but if we think of kind of the, our traditional a median campus student that we would see in our residential campus, um, the majority of them physically live on campus and are residential students. So the things that impact those students, it would impact kind of the triggers that would um, either raise the alarm or raise the, you know, the celebratory bell, like things are going great, are drastically different, right? So when we run, you know, an annual survey or we run the VOC um, kind of mechanisms that we pull, the answers we get from campus students are drastically different because the, the levers that influence them are so different, like the dining hall services or the facilities that they use or, um, you know, the, the COVID-19 restrictions or requirements that we currently have in place because they're all things that, that don't impact our online population in the same way because they're physically not here kind of with us in front of us. Um, and so it's a very different exercise. And then also I will share just for kind of um, context, the way that students enter either of those spaces, um, either campus, obviously they would both typically enter virtually in terms of kind of how they would apply to us um, is very different um, just because um, the majority of students that come to campus are the traditional aged, um, kind of right out of high school student. Um, we do have non-traditional students um, excuse me, and a, um, and a um, small population of students who are attending, um, who are veterans and are, are, you know, attending with military benefits, that type of thing. Um, that being said, our online population, we do have a substantial number of students who, who do come right out of high school, um, but we also have a majority of that population is your kind of working um, mom, dad, um, or older age student. And so, um, the mechanisms in, in which are in place for the applications of both of those two things um, are drastically different. And so um, we participate on campus in the common application, which is essentially um, an application students can fill out and have it sent to multiple um, kind of traditional residential institutions um, on campus versus online um, is a separate kind of application process that's just different. Yeah, it's almost two entirely different products, right? I mean, the end result, that diploma, sure, that's that's kind of what you're paying for. And certainly from a, an online, you're, you're paying for the learning experience. But as an on-campus student, you're paying for more than just a learning experience, right? It's yeah, the living experience. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we're, we're just kind of delving into identifying um, some of those customer performance indicators for our campus students, because really why our campus students is here could be, might be uh, drastically different than why our online students kind of show up um, or attend our online programs, right? So if I'm an online student, um, I can be doing this because I need to get a, pro I need it to get a promotion at work or I need it to keep my job at work, right? Um, or I need it to change career fields, or I need it to, you know, X, Y, and Z. Whereas if I'm, you know, 18, the reason I'm attending SNHU on campus could be one of those things, likely is not, right? right. Um, so that's certainly a hypothesis that I have. Um, I'm not running the survey, of course. Um, <laughs> that being said, kind of identifying and better understanding why our students are here um, will help us better understand what those expectations are and how we can meet them 
um, and then be able to measure if we are meeting them or, or not, um, and then kind of put some safeguards in place to then react um, and glean some of those insights to then kind of act on those um, that feedback. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the one of the things after I had talked to you about being on the show that came to my attention, and then I think it kind of went a, a little bit viral on Twitter was this challenge that a prof I don't remember what school this was at, but they had this challenge where they had stashed $50 in some locker uh, and had put the instructions on how to retrieve this money at the end of their syllabus. And mm -hmm. then they kind of threw out, well, you know, nobody reads the syllabus, obviously, because my $50 is still there. Whoever wanted it could have come and claimed it had they read the syllabus. And I think kind of the general reaction was, well, these, you know, kids are lazy. They don't read the syllabus. You tell them what to do and they don't do it. But I wonder from a customer experience standpoint, what you thought about that situation and what questions it sparked for you? Sure. Yeah, so when I read the article that you're referencing, um, I had a lot of thoughts and feelings, of course, but um, <laughs> I will share a lot of the work um, that we have done at SNHU is talking about the verbiage that we use um, and understanding kind of where our students are when they show up um, and really meeting our learners where they're at. Um, and so if I remember correctly, the article um, that featured the syllabus, uh, the $50 kind of clue or carrot was hidden amongst a variety of words that to, to be transparent, I likely couldn't pronounce if I attempted to read them all. Um, in paragraph format as was presented in the syllabus. And so if I think through, if I'm, you know, a first time in college student, my parents are first generation, I'm a first generation college student, my parents didn't go to college, and I don't know what any of these words mean, I'm probably not going to keep reading because I'm already feeling probably like I don't belong here and like I'm not going to do well in this class and I don't understand what's happening. So if I continue to keep reading, I'm, I'm likely going to Kind of go down this rabbit hole of feeling less confident, less secure, less prepared to be here. So I just stop, right? And so um, I know at SNHU we've done a lot of work with um, with our great faculty partners, and you know we have some incredible faculty um, and staff, of course. And so we've done a lot of work, just kind of educating a lot of folks on um, the language that you use and understanding kind of the demographics of the students that are, are, are coming to us as incoming, you know, first year students. And that being said, um, that kind of median student is usually kind of the, the metric that we use or the disclaimer, and that varies by institution. And so, you know, I could certainly be making an assumption about, you know, SNHU students versus, I don't remember exactly the college um, that this professor worked at, but um, I would find it hard pressed, you know, unless every student that went there got you know, 1600 on their SATs. Um, oh, I'm showing my age. That's no longer the SAT score, I guess, but um, it's changed because I took the first one that changed. So uh, I'm like, that's not right. Um, and so the, the purpose, I have a lot of questions about. Um, it seemed as though the, the purpose was to simply prove that students don't read the syllabus versus 
how to get students to read the syllabus, right? And so the the overall intent and goal seems to, to not be aligned with the, the actual role of the faculty member, um, right? If we think about what, what faculty's roles are at an institution, it's, you know, to, to support students in, in their academic, you know, journey and career um, and to support them in their career aspirations and whatever that might look like. And there's a variety of different, you know, fashions and, and ways that they can do that. Um, and I use the word adventure a lot because for a lot of students, that's, that's what it is, right? Yeah. And so I, I certainly had a, a pinball of, of my, you know, um, four and a half year college uh, degree um, in my undergrad because I transferred. But um, without some of that guidance that I received, um, I don't know that I would have graduated, to be honest, and not because I, I couldn't. Um, there was just a lot of life things happening and there were so many factors outside of my ability to, to physically, you know, complete assignments was, was not the issue. It was all of these other things that were impacting me outside of the classroom um, and realistically outside of the institution. And the institution was the thing that was like safe and what made it safe for me to, to kind of go and, and do all of these things. And so if we think about, you know, the world today and all of the things that are impacting our students, there are far more influencers and external, you know, potentially negative factors influencing our students than there were, you know, when I was in college 10, 15 years ago. Um, and so thinking through that, it just raised a lot of questions and, and you know, concerns about why. Um, and if the if the intention was to have a student find the fifty dollars and then every student since then would read the syllabus because they thought they'd get fifty bucks, um, I'm I'm still not sold. Um, but that being said, it just raised a lot of questions about intent and purpose um, that also stem kind of back to that like you're asking a question in a way that doesn't actually lead you to the results that you want, right? Um, yeah. So that's kind of where I, where I went down the rabbit hole a little bit. No, I, you bring up some really great points. And I think that the first one about the intent is really important. Like, what is the purpose of any thing that we're doing? And understanding that and aligning that with our, our high level purpose, whatever that is, makes a huge impact to how we go about doing things. And certainly I agree with you, the intent was not to entice people to read the syllabus. I think the uh, intent was, I know people aren't going to read the syllabus and this will be a funny thing that I can post on social media and, and kind of poke yeah, fun and, at kids. <laughs> and, and how does that make your students feel, right? Like right. It, it goes back to this, this interesting question about the purpose that we're, we're here, kind of as educators, um, you know, and I'll loop faculty and staff into the educators bucket, because um, I'm in the camp that we are all here to, to be educators, regardless of our, our role. Um, that being said, it, it just asks a lot of questions about why, and, and that intent doesn't seem well-intended, right? And I'm and I try really hard to assume good intent. Um, <laughs> and this was something that I really struggled with, with finding a, a positive outcome um, or a positive intention from period, to be honest. And like the best I could come up with was 
someone will find it and then every student might read the syllabus afterwards. Right. Maybe. Right. right. And so I think as we kind of think about our work in education, the alignment of not only those decisions that we make in each of those actions, but also thinking about the alignment of those specific things with our institution or department, kind of depending upon how um, it's, breaking, it's broken down at, at various institutions, um, kind of rolls back into or rolls up into, kind of depending on how verticals are done, um, the overall mission, vision, et cetera, whichever, you know, which one we want to refer to. Um, but similar to um, kind of corporate, right? Like if we think about, you know, how is this impacting your customers? Is this a good decision for your customers? There are going to be different conversations about like, what does it mean to be good for customers? And there's going to be different feelings and thoughts and opinions as to what does good mean, um, right? And is, is good enough enough? And the, we have the same conversations in education about learners and students, right? Like, is this, is this decision good for learners? Is this in the best interest of our learners? And there are people that will say like drastically yes. And there are people for the same decision that will say drastically no. And at times they both have valid points. And so how do you find a middle ground to truly understand what does it mean to be good or best for learners, right? And as a, as a, math, as a math teacher, um, those good and best are interesting words to use, right? Because <laughs> we know that it all just depends upon what you're comparing yourself to, right? Like we know statistics are um, easily manipulated and you know any car company can say they are the best at X, Y, and Z because they are choosing whatever they wanna be the best at. And, and that's what they're going with. Um, they're probably not the best at all these other, you know, 150 things, but they don't have to be because they're only telling you about the three that they are the best at. And so I think it just, there's a lot of gray in education and in general. And so it's kind of navigating that gray area and really getting people um, to have those difficult conversations and also doing it from a place of um, true empathy and compassion for not only each other, but the students that are with us have been with us, such as alumni or prospective students that we know kind of will be there in the future. And this basic understanding of we're all here for the same reason of right supporting these students. And so um, the article didn't didn't feel good when I read it, to be honest. Yeah, I I'm with you there. It it brought up a few things, some of which you touched on there. Like I I feel like number one if uh now to be fair i haven't looked at a syllabus in 25 years so let's just put that out there i don't i i don't i barely remember that what a syllabus looks like no no please don't i don't <laughs> want anything to do with it that said it makes me wonder number one uh do we put too much jargon in a syllabus. So you kind of brought this uh, up about, you know, words in a big paragraph that maybe aren't recognizable to a first year student and that that may just kind of shut someone down, right? I, I don't feel like I belong here. All of a sudden you kind of get this imposter syndrome going. So the, the words that we use are important. Uh, something that I, have 
been a, a big fan of one of uh, the people I'm connected with on LinkedIn, uh, Leslie O'Flavahan. Uh, she's a big advocate of plain language, right? And how we communicate things through plain language to have the best possible reach. So I think that's one thing. The other thing that strikes me is do, do students actually understand why it's important to read through the syllabus or is it important to read through the syllabus like that i think those are questions that need to be answered and if it's important okay great but if the students don't understand why it's important they're not going to be motivated to do that and it doesn't matter if you've got some random carrot like it's just not going to do uh -huh. it because they don't think it's important yeah, it goes back to like, what is the motivating factor, right? And I'm the, I was the student through my K-12 education in high school and my master's programs. Um, that was the, if I don't think this is important, like, I'm not doing it. I was, yeah, yeah I was the trouble child in elementary, middle and high school. That was like, I don't understand. Like, why is this, why is this helpful? And what am I going to use this? And why can't I do it this way? Like that was me forever. And so when I think about students in, in syllabi, realistically, right? Like I taught high school math and in our math classes in high school, like we had a syllabus and we went through it at the beginning of every semester. And so at this specific, these two specific high schools that I taught at when I was teaching K-12, um, I know that students had seen the syllabus. Do I know that any other school had syllabi or used them? No. Yeah. Do do I know that it looked the same or that it contained the same stuff? I don't, right? Like I, I know what I did as me as the math teacher in high school. And I know what I do as a math, you know, as an adjunct math faculty, you know, at SNHU. Um, but there's also a lot of differences between what would have been in a syllabus in high school and what would have been in a syllabus in college, right? So if we think just basically about um, like any type of accommodation students need um, or um, like 504 accommodations or um, for learning differences, that type of thing. Um, in high school, those were for the most part dictated for them and given to them um, by virtue of um, conversations with parents, guardians, family members, et cetera, whoever was their um, kind of designated person. Um, whereas in college, like you don't just get them. Like you have to physically go tell another human, like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm Shana, and I have epilepsy and I have a concentration disorder. And so here's my medical documentation that like I need accommodations. And then they have to review all of your stuff and then say like yes or no, and then give you an accommodation. And then in some places, like the student then has to share those accommodations with their various faculty members themselves. And so like just that one process of how to receive the accommodations that I'm legally entitled to as per law, right, are so different from this one experience to another, but who tells them these things, right? right? Other than your syllabus that yeah. says like, if you need accommodations, please see this office. Um, but to that point, do students know where that office is? Do they know what that means? Do they know what the word accommodations means? They may not even know what that word, like, 
And so it's thinking through how do you make that important and how do you make students understand the importance of something when you know that it's so widely variable across the board, whether that's in you know, a K-12 setting or that's in a higher ed setting, right? Because faculty have, um, I mean, most institutions have very, um, there's like specific policies that need to go in their syllabi and they have to have, you know, the room number and the days their class meets and very basic information. Um, and some policies about, you know, academic integrity and accommodations and like, there's like a handful of things that have to be in there. Um, and then what else goes in there? is faculty, um, is ability for faculty to kind of use their freedom as they may. Um, and so there are faculty who could have a 10 page syllabus and there are faculty that could have a one page syllabus depending upon um, where they land and what that looks like. And so how do you get the wire crossed for the one page syllabus, syllabus and then also share the why for the 10 page syllabus and those, those whys could be the same, but they could also be very different. Um, and so students are now juggling the like, well, why is this so different from here to here? And why is everything not similar? And so it's just a very different environment that they're frankly not used to. And how do we kind of get them accustomed to that in a, in a rapid iteration way? Um, that kind of is, is the magic question, right? That every school probably internationally has, has struggled to kind of figure out how do you best support students transitioning from high school to college um, who struggle with that transition because it is so different, right? And you're now away from home and have the freedom of time and you have to choose whether you get up or you have to choose um, to go to class. And if you don't go, no one's calling your house and no one is you know, doing these other things that would have happened, right? So the, the consequences are more severe, right? Because you are paying money and not going. Um, but how do you, what are those levers that you can pull to then get students to understand the importance of various things once they're already here, right? Because you can tell them it's important, but how do you get them to, to actually know and understand? And then how do you measure that they do know and understand is kind of the the back end of that question. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I have to assume that it is easily lost on the people that are dealing with it every day, right? That the faculty and the staff at, at a university, but I'm sure like a great many things, right? It's easy to forget about, but in particular for those first year students, it's such a drastic change. Like everything changes. Like it's it's like we just here go adult. <laughs> you go to university and you go adult and you figure it out. And uh, your entire experience of life is is changed. You know, I think back to when I was, and it's hard because so long ago for me to remember when I was a freshman in college. But you're living here on your own for the first time, you're right, right? I have to set my alarm. Nobody's gonna yell at me for not getting up on time. I, if I decide I just don't wanna go to class, I just don't go to class, right? Uh, maybe I decide I got better things to do, or maybe I'm out all night partying and uh, like that 8 a.m. calculus class, I'm just like, mm, no, nah, I don't think so. Not happening today. 
Like those are all things that you can do. Meanwhile, you are paying an enormous sum, uh, uh, particularly today, it was less so when I went to school, but school is really expensive today. You're paying an enormous sum of money for this education and this experience, often without having a full understanding of like how much money that actually is. Like <laughs> you don't have a yeah. concept of how much debt you may actually be getting into if you're if you're taking on student loans because you just haven't ever had to deal with that before. Yeah, I mean I was a I was a math major, a double major in math and education. And I graduated with six figures of student loan debt and didn't understand what that meant. And like, I was good at math, but like, I didn't know what, I didn't know how to factor loans. No one had ever taught me what loans other than like, I have to pay them back. Like I, I, I understood that part. I knew that it wasn't free money. So I was like already ahead of some of my counterparts there. Um, but I didn't understand interest rates and what that actually meant and how much money I was going to have to pay eventually. <laughs> um, and my first teaching job out of college, my contract was for $29,000 a year. And I thought that was like millions because I didn't know. I had made, you know, $6 an hour at the ice rink as a skate monitor, you know, for public skate and handing out skate rentals. Um, and I worked at like a gas station during college making like eight bucks, I think. Like, so to me, $29,000 a year sounded like a, a lot of money. And it was at the time, right? And so- you know, then it was like, oh, you have to find a place to live. And, you know, thankfully, like my mom was like, it shouldn't be more than 30% of your, you know, the traditional, you know, rule of thumb, not more than 30% of your take-home pay. And I was like, so I have to find a place to live for $400. <laughs> and I was like, okay, nope, like didn't panic yet. And then I looked online, you know, like, you know, rent.com or Craigslist or wherever I looked. And of course there was literally nothing. Um, for $400, unless I wanted to rent um, a very questionable like motel room. Um, <laughs> and I had this like moment of like, wait, like I did all of the things I was supposed to do. No one has told me that like, this is what was going to happen. And I'm, I now like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know where I'm gonna live. And like, I just signed this contract to, to work at this place doing at the time, what I thought was like my, my dream job. And I'm six, you know, over a hundred grand in, in debt for, for this question mark. And it was this like moment of wait, like, I feel like I just got bamboozled. Um, and then it just asked the question of like, whose job is it to mm. have that conversation, right? Like, should I have done more research? You know, neither of my parents went to college. And so they did um, it was really important for them for that I went. And so obviously I did. Um, but they didn't know what teachers made out of out of school. Like they thought mm -hmm. teaching was like a great job um, and had this great benefits. Like that's what they knew, right? And so thinking about what that looks like and what it means um, and knowing that when I looked, I made, I think like 12 or $1,500 over the um, section eight is our like housing authority yeah. in New Hampshire. And so the over like the section eight maximum limit um to receive like state assistance i was like uh, well this is a full-time job i don't understand right. but like a good job i've been told my whole life this is a good job and and now i'm in this place of i've done all of the things and and now 
now what do I do? And so obviously I made it work for a handful of years and and so the very quick to sign up for a master's program when I needed more money. <laughs> um and and so it was just this feeling of like what happened, like this blur of I just did all of these things, I did everything I was supposed to do, and it, it got me to to this point. Now, now what do I do? Right. And so it's it asked the, the question, as I mentioned earlier, like whose whose job is that, right? Like whose job is it to to tell students like what what those income expectations are depending upon and it's very different by state and by district right so like i recognize mm -hmm. i i accepted a contract at one of the lower paying districts in the state of new hampshire which i will admit um but i didn't know that right like i didn't know what was a good district and what was a higher paying district and also i was right out of college so it was a teaching job and i was like yay woo. um and so it's questions that we still haven't answered as an industry, yeah. right? If we think about um, the the role of institutions and the role of colleges, the perception of institutions from the public versus the perceptions of institutions from themselves, there's a, a drastic mismatch between what those perceptions are. Um, and there's been a bunch of studies, I don't have them offhand, but um, that have shown that public perception in higher ed has been declining steadily, um, you know, over the last five to 10 years. And institutions are now viewed as, as part of the problem rather than part of the solution due to the rising costs and kind of what that means. And um, there's a lot of things obviously that factor into that perception. Um, and the industry for the most part has said like, well, that's just not true. Um, and, and continue to go about their business as if things are, you know, normal and fine when we know that every year there are, you know, dozens and dozens of small institutions closing because they can't financially sustain their current models. And so at what point do we say like, okay, like this isn't working and we need to shift gears and what does that look like? And so the pandemic has sped some of that up, I think, for some of the institutions just due to out of necessity um, for some of the financial pieces, because that really um, hurt a lot of institutions, as you can imagine, right, as it hurt a lot of kind of industries and corporations across the globe. Um, but what that looks like in the future, I, I don't know. Um, but I think education has has long needed um, some, some shifts, um, not only in kind of practices, but also in um, it starts with the mindsets and perceptions of the folks that work there um, and the folks that are able to make those decisions and kind of make things priorities um, because that's the first thing that has to happen is we have to believe that that change is necessary and that change is, is not a, a bad thing or a detractor for our students. And so if, if we can all get on the same page um, about what it means for our students and, and the why behind what we're attempting to do, then are we really going to be successful, right? And, and the same is true if we think of kind of our, our corporate friends in, in the CXCS space, right? Like if we're trying to implement a new product for our customers, whether it's in the education space, um, or I know Rob, you work in the enablement space, and only 25% of your folks are on board, like out of the gate, you, you know it's likely not going to be successful because you're going to have people um, who are probably going out of their way to, to make it not successful because they don't agree with why it's happening. Um, and so how do we how do we turn the dial on 
the folks who are detracting from the initiative while also like moving forward and, and kind of seeing the, the industry as a whole look to be better and want to be better, right? When we know that there's some places that, that don't see an issue. Yeah, well, the good news is there's a huge opportunity, I think, um, in front of all universities. And I'm glad there are people like you out there kind of leading the charge because uh, it's, it's definitely an important thing. And you're right, the way that um, people perceive higher ed today is different than it was from when I was a kid and, and not in a good way. And so the more that we can work towards um, making sure that uh, those expectations are aligned and that we're servicing the customer, which is the learner in this case, and, and trying to have the best outcomes for them, the more successful everyone will be at that, so. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. I think it's it's taking the, the student experience and, and, and not replacing it with the customer, right? Because I think that's where a lot of the, the disagreements have come from, right? And it's really breaking it into the learner experience and the customer experience and having it be a kind of a, a twofold approach. It's been so great having you on. Thank you so much, Shana. I appreciate your time today. And I look forward to talking to you again because you opened some cans of worms that we didn't even have a chance to get to. So yes, Rob, I would love to come back and I would love um, to keep our conversation going. So thank you so much for today. I really appreciated it. Well, thank you.